You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, Harvest Church family. Welcome, online friends. We're really uh, thrilled to be able to uh, engage in worship services again this Sunday morning. I trust already that the worship has been meaningful to you and really eager to get into God's word now. Uh, Know that we are praying for you and we are asking that God, even in this moment, that God would make himself real and alive in our homes and in our hearts uh, for his glory. Uh, Let me start this morning with Mark chapter nine. If you can turn there with me. Uh, Mark chapter nine is where we're going to be today. And I want to start with a quote from Andrew Murray. As you turn there, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13. I want to start with a quote from Andrew Murray today. So as you turn, uh, listen up to this. The highest glory of the creature, Andrew Murray says, is in being only a vessel to receive and enjoy and show forth the glory of God. Let me say that again. The highest glory of the creature or the created one is in being only a vessel to receive and enjoy and show forth the glory of the creator or the glory of God. One of the major truths we have come to know and love through the scriptures about God is that he is a glorious God or he is a God full of glory. We talk about God's glory a lot because the scriptures tie his glory with his nature and his character. We sing of the glory of a risen savior. In fact, we even read passages like Exodus chapter 33 that talks about Moses and four of the most powerful words in scripture from a human being are this, when Moses says, God, show me your glory glory. And we resonate with that because we know we're created for something greater. We know that we have an internal longing for something more than this world has to offer. And then we see Moses, God answer Moses' prayer and God says, yes, Moses, I'll show you my glory, but you can't see my face and live. And so what he does is he puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and he puts his hand over him and then his glory passes by so that Moses catches a glimpse of the back of God. And then in chapter 34, he comes down from the mountain, his face radiant with the glory of God. Just a glimpse of God made Moses' face radiant with the glory of God so much so that he had to veil his face to allow others around him to not go blind in his presence. And we sing and we read and we see the glory of God in our hearts. Our hearts start pumping. We, we start realizing that we're created uh, and with a longing to encounter someone and something more in this earth. And from these passages, we realize that to truly live life is to know and see the glory of Jesus Christ. Better than our best day on earth, better than winning our little sports championship we longed for as a kid, better than our first date and our graduation day. Better than even our our marriage ceremony and our first child and our first house and whatever accolades you've got, better than all those things, trumping all those things is an encounter with the glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of our lives. So in Mark chapter nine, we see Jesus revealing himself to his disciples in a way that he has never been seen before. This is the only time in the book of Mark where we see the resurrected Jesus or a glimpse of the resurrected Jesus before his death, burial, and resurrection. 
Here's what I want you to know from this passage. You can start with this and, and write this point down in your notes. Uh, Jesus reveals the fullness of his glory. Jesus reveals the fullness of his glory. Last week we learned how Christ calls us to, to come and join him in his suffering. And, and yet now we know that the following the leader is not just, not just in suffering, but it's also in beholding the glory of a living God. Here's what it says in chapter 9, verses 1 to 4. Read along with me. And he said to them, his disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with them Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to him, appeared with him, uh, to them, Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Stop and let this sink in for a moment. This is not some fable that someone made up. This is actually what happened after Jesus had described to his disciples his impending death and there also to join him in denying themselves and taking up the cross and following Jesus, he then reveals to them the, the, the reality of the God that they're serving, a glorious God of the universe. What's happening here is Jesus is really telling uh, Peter, James, and John, remember they're on the inner circle. These are the reformed fishermen. They were fishermen rougher on the edges. Jesus is reforming them and transforming them as they walk with him. And he's showing them that, hey, hey, I know all this suffering and all this, this path of, this least traveled path is, is kind of hard to, hard to settle in and it's hard to figure out. But just know this, that the suffering servant is not the end game of Jesus Christ. The picture of Jesus in Isaiah 53 is not the way he's going to be defined forever. Yes, the cross is going to define him, but even more so than a, than a cross, than, a, than a, a cross and a tomb is going to be an empty tomb and a resurrected Jesus in all his glory. This really dramatically demonstrates the true reality of Jesus' life. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. Right away we're thinking, what's he talking about here? Starts with the word truly, translated amen. Generally we say amen at the end of a prayer saying, may it be so. Jesus is saying this at the beginning of his prayer saying, this is so. This is a promise you can count on. Some people standing here will not see death until they see the sun, until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with all power. Right away we think, what in the world's going on? Well, this is, this, this is maybe the first heir of the Bible because these guys died before Jesus' kingdom's come. Like, like so many people have died, Jesus' kingdom hasn't come yet. And so let me tell you this, hold the trains. Hold the trains. We have to understand what he's talking about here. He's not talking about the, the, res the coming of Jesus at the end of all times being the kingdom of God. He, he could be talking about a couple of things here, maybe all these things. One of the things he could be talking about is simply that the kingdom of God and all power could be coming when he actually transfigures before them. Maybe the kingdom of God with all power is talking about Easter. We just celebrated this. The, the tomb is empty. The, the, the kingdom of God is, is arriving in people's hearts in all power. Maybe he's talking about the Pentecost. When Jesus was, was taken up from this earth to the right hand of the Father, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit was left behind, the kingdom of God with all powers arrived, and the Holy Spirit was left, and the church age began, and the kingdom of God began to reign in individuals' hearts. 
So probably not talking about the end times, talking about all these realities, the kingdom of God in all power is coming upon us now with the age of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And some of these guys, all these guys, did not taste death until they saw the fullness of all of Jesus' reign and power come to this earth. After he describes that, he says this, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John to the mountainside by themselves. After six literal days to let the call of the reality of what Jesus was going to go through sink in, to allow the call of God to sink in, he took him to a mountaintop. Debate is, which mountaintop is this? Is this Mount Tabor, the, you know, the, the, the rock that's about 2,000 feet above sea level in Galilee, a beautiful and appealing place where the Church of Transfiguration now stands? Uh, most likely that could be it. Is it Mount Hermon? A little bit on the north end of the uh, nation of Israel, uh, 10,000 feet in height. Some think it's there. It's the bigger mountain closer to God. Um, debate about that. Maybe one or maybe one, probably one of those mountains. Regardless, it doesn't really matter what mountain it's on. The reality is, it's mountains is kind of referring to a suburb of heaven, close to God, close to eternal glory, close to the truly exalted position that would come upon Jesus Christ. And then he does this, he transfigures, and he was transfigured. Remarkable. Can you imagine if you're there? Just say, hey, come with me in this little mountain retreat, fellas. Next thing you know, like he is glowing. He is, is radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach his clothes. The, transfer, the transfiguration is kind of like a metamorphosis. Like a tadpole goes to a frog, like a caterpillar goes to a butterfly. So Jesus, in a much more supernatural spiritual way is going from his earthly shell to his heavenly being. It's interesting to note as one commentator says, this is different than kind of resurrection appearances and a resurrection. Jesus goes in a resurrection appearance. Jesus goes from being unknown to being known to being unseen, to being seen. And in this, Jesus is there all the time. He's present continually so that there's no shadow of a doubt this was Jesus in his earthly state. Now we see Jesus in his heavenly state and look at his heavenly state. You know those, those days where you go outside and you look up at the sun and you, it's so bright, your eyes are all pounding and, and the, the blotches of, of, as you turn away from the sun, you got all blotchy eyes. Like This is a radiant Jesus. Bleach white clothes, like, a, like an angelic experience, like a greater than a touch by the angel, which is like a dong. This is, this is Jesus actually glowing. Kind of like a Mr. Clean, but like a million times more. More beautiful than the most beautiful wedding dress that would make any bride look gorgeous. This is the full reality of Jesus Christ in his resurrected state. Notice this. In the Old Testament, the glory of God was often attributed to a brilliant light. Also notice this, that God did this. He was transfigured. No one snapped their fingers Jesus didn't say any magical words. God simply decided that now was a time to reveal the true nature of his Son, Remember Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Peter says, you are the Christ. Jesus is like, bam, Peter, you got it. Now you see it. I am the Christ. 
Next thing you know, Moses and Elijah show up. That's kind of random, don't you think? Up with Jesus, all of a sudden he's glowing and like maybe levitating. Mo- Moses and Elijah show up. Who are these guys? Well, Moses represents the law, as we know. He rep- represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And Jesus is showing up to be the fulfillment of the law and to be the greatest prophet that ever walked on this earth. Remember this, both of these guys also had their own mountaintop experience. Uh, Moses on Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. Then we see Elijah in 1 Kings 19 on Mount Horeb where he spends 40 days and 40 nights and where he's actually speaking to God face to face. Then we see also Elijah in 1 Kings 18 at Mount Carmel where the fire comes down. Really all of a sudden God is in his boardroom, mountaintop, where he speaks to his people face to face with two who've already encountered him, now encountering his three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And we see a picture here of the incarnate glory of the Son of God, the glorified God in all of his splendor, in all of his majesty. You ever think of Jesus in this way? We have to think of him as the gentle, the, the, the simple carpenter, the gentle shepherd. Well, when was the last time you stopped to think of Jesus as the glorified, living reality of the Son of God? Just stop for a minute and think about it. The glory of Jesus Christ reigning now in all power with fullness of glory in much the same way that we see here in Mark chapter nine. I don't want you, but it just serves me at this point in the passage to stop and just allow the glory of God to once again permeate my mind and fill my heart and capture my attention. Man, I'd long to have an experience like this. We are gonna have it in heaven, but we've got glimpses of it, of the glorified Jesus right here in this passage. You know, a song it brings to mind, a song we used to sing when I was a kid that I still sometimes find myself uh, humming along to or quietly singing under my breath on certain days. It's, it's I stand in awe of you. It goes like this, you are beautiful beyond description. Too marvelous for words. Too wonderful for comprehension like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp your infinite wisdom, who can fathom the depth of your love, your beautiful beyond description, majesty enthroned above. The chorus goes like this, and I stand, I almost want to sing, but I don't want to do that to you because that's going to throw us all off. I stand, I stand in awe of you. I stand, I stand in awe of you. Holy God to whom all praises due, I stand in awe of you. Why don't you just stop right now and stand in awe of Jesus Christ? Not just the crucified carpenter, but the shining Savior of the universe. Jesus' glory shows me some things about him that I have to have, not just in my minds, but permeate my hearts. Here's some of the realities that come from even seeing Jesus in his glorified state. Here's one is that Jesus stands alone in his absolute beauty. 
Consider his absolute beauty in this. We, we somehow, somehow come to think everything in this world is beautiful, and we take our family and friends to Niagara Falls, and we're like, oh, how beautiful. And we look at a sunset, we're like, oh, how beautiful. Kind of takes our breath away. We, we, we look at a calm lake, and we're like, oh, how beautiful. We, we visit different places, we have different experiences, but you know what? There's only one true beautiful in this universe, and his name is Jesus Christ. Allow yourself this morning to be captured by him, to be drawn to him, to let your imagination be engrossed with his holy presence. Here's what it says in Psalm 27, verse four. One thing I have asked for from the Lord that I shall seek. This is what we should all be asking for and seeking more than anything else, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. This is our pinnacle of life is, is one day we're going to see the, the full beauty of Jesus Christ. How do we see it here? How do we see the beauty of Jesus here on earth? Well, we get into his word and we look for not just instructions for life, but we look to see a description of Jesus. We look to see, to see the description of God and who he is. And, and we allow ourselves to be enamored with Jesus. We also can go out in creation, yet those experiences that we have aren't wrong and they're not bad to see Niagara Falls and look at a sunrise or a sunset and look over a still lake. But here's the reality. We don't worship the, cre- the creation. We worship the creator. Those are just glimpses of the beauty of Jesus Christ. Here's what Augustine says. Because the face of God is so lovely, my brothers and sisters, so beautiful, once you have seen it, nothing else can give you pleasure. It will give insatiable satisfaction of which we will never tire. I'm bored of going to falls. Probably you are too, but Jesus' beauty, we will never tire of. We shall always be hungry and always have our fill. Jesus' glory shows me his absolute beauty. Jesus' glory also shows me this, his indescribable majesty. So much has been said in these days about bucket lists and about even the seven wonders of the world, the pictures you can see on the screen behind you, the um, Great Wall of China and Petra and the Colosseum of Rome and uh, Chichen Itza in Mexico and Machu Picchu in Peru and Taj Mahal in India and Christ the Redeemer in Brazil. All again, wonders of the world. But there is one true wonder of all the ages, of all the universe, and his name is Jesus Christ. There's one true wonder worth longing for and visiting on your bucket list. It's an encounter with Jesus Christ and a pursuit of one day being with him forever. First Chronicles 16, 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. To stop and see the majesty and the glory of Jesus. Let me define glory for you. You know, you've been waiting for this, but I've been waiting to bring it to this point just to, 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 to bring it home. Here's the glory, the majesty of Jesus. One pastor said it this way. This is not my words, it's someone else's. It is who God is. It is the essence of his nature, the weight of his importance, the radiance of his splendor, the demonstration of his power, the atmosphere of his presence. When was the last time you experienced your heart being lifted with the fullness of his majesty? 
Today's a great day for that. What about this? His infinite holiness. Jesus also, his glory shows me his infinite holiness. It says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, we're going to be singing a song to Jesus in heaven. It's not going to be some of the frivolous songs we sing here on earth. It's going to be this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, Holy, holy. Look at the, the, the white robe and the, the, the radiance. It's, it's showing that God is set apart. God is otherworldly. God is perfectly pure and absolutely moral in all of his rightness and his perfection. And we should become undone in the presence of a holy God. We should delight in the presence of a holy God. In fact, uh, R.C. Sproul said this about the holiness of God, which this points us to. If you don't delight in the fact that your father is holy, 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 then you're spiritually dead. You may be in church, you may go to Christian school, but there's no delight in your soul for the holiness of God. You cannot simply know God. You don't love God, you're out of touch with God, you're asleep to his character. Oh, Lord, help us this morning to wake up to the character of God, my soul, your soul. Maybe for the first time that, that your soul come alive with the reality of Jesus. Maybe you've been there, but now you're finding so much delight in other things that once again you'd be captured by the essence of Jesus. Maybe you're there and just, this will just fuel your passion to pursue Christ and Christ alone. Got to keep going in this text. Here's a second point. Jesus' identity cannot be hidden, verses five to eight. Jesus' identity cannot be hidden. Let me read for these verses for you that unpack them. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah, for you did not know what to say. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Listen to him, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but only Jesus. Here's the truth you have to know today. Jesus' identity cannot be hidden. You know how we love those weight loss shows where they start out uh, and uh, X amount of pounds and go through these programs and come out like, like 150 pounds less, and they have the big reveal moments, you know? We love the big reveal moments for the before and after. Well, here's the big reveal, not before and after, but here's the big reveal, the glory and the splendor of Jesus Christ. So magnificent was Jesus that Peter didn't even know what to say. So Peter's a lot like us. You know how we, we get in overwhelming moments and our lips start flapping and our brain turns off? Well, that's Peter right here. He's just talking. And Peter's the leader of the crew. And sometimes you wonder, why is Peter the leader of the crew? He just starts talking and he makes no sense. And clearly he doesn't get it. Peter just reminds us of how we are in all kinds of circumstances, but especially with the glory of Jesus Christ. Look what Peter says. And Peter thinks he's all smart, and he's like, he's like, right away, we know he doesn't get it. Look what he says. He says, Rabbi. Wait, wait. He's still calling Jesus great teacher or teacher. Surely he'd realize that Jesus is greater than a teacher at this point. When was the last time one of your teachers in public school, elementary school, or high school, or college all of a sudden started glowing bright, brightly and then had a couple dead people you were talking about joining them in conversation? That just doesn't happen. Peter missed the full point already that he, this was the resurrected, picture of the resurrected Jesus, the one that he was going to, the one that was reigning in all glory. Then he goes on to say this. He goes, Rabbi, and Jesus is probably thinking, what, Peter, what? 
It is, it is good that we are here. Oh, really, Peter? It's good that you're here. Hey, why is it good you're here? You know, dinner last night was good. This is, this is far greater than good. This is amazing. And, and why is it good that you're here? You think you're special. You think you're all that. And he goes, and he says this, let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Why, why don't we just make this our little retreat place, Jesus? And we can have a little powwow here and, and this can be our special little place. And what was he talking about here with tents? He's talking about a picture like this on the screen of which was used when um, the Israelites would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. They'd go out into the wilderness for eight days, spend a day at the beginning, a day at the end in worship. And then they'd, they'd simply take some time as described in Leviticus chapter 23 where they would celebrate the deliverance of God from Egypt and look forward to final deliverance that he'd promised the people. So they spend time in the wilderness just focusing on, hey, look what God's done and expecting what God's going to do in the, in the um, Feast of Tabernacles. And so Peter's probably thinking that. And he's like, why don't we have these little booze for you and for Elijah and for Moses that we can be like Israel always did and commemorate that you are our God. Again, Peter's making big blunders here. It's not for him. They don't need shelters, in fact, in fact, he's putting Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the same plane. So terrified, he's speaking nonsense. You ever been in greatness and you start speaking nonsense? Way back when we were first married, Ruth and I went to a Supertones concert and got to meet them after. And we got to meet these guys and Ruth just goes, she's one of her favorite bands back then. She goes, huh, you guys are cool. And I was like, really, honey? Really? That's what you're going to say? She's like, okay, yeah. I can't remember what she said. It was all, and she's like, I don't know. I just got all flustered. I'm like, that's the best you got. This is Peter. That's the best you got. To make it clear that this isn't a permanent thing, that Jesus does stand above Moses and Elijah. He does fulfill the law. He is greater than all prophets. A cloud comes down. See what happens? A cloud comes down. Old Testament, a cloud signifies uh, God's presence and his protection over his people. Think of the cloud leading the Israelites by day. And think of the cloud that came over the tent of meeting when Moses went in and Joshua, his young aide, would sit there waiting. He'd sit there waiting, longing for an experience with God like Moses had. In the New Testament, the cloud is what's talked about in Revelation 1, 7, where it's He's going to come back on the clouds. He's going to come back on the clouds. It's going to be the greatest day in all of history when Jesus comes back, signifying God's presence. And, and then a voice comes from heaven, like at his baptism. We studied this. Look what the voice says. This is making it abundantly clear. This is my beloved son. This isn't anybody. This isn't a, a prophet. This isn't, this isn't a great leader of Israel. This is the one and only unique son of the living God. Listen to him, it says. Don't just stand in awe, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. In other words, God just makes it clear this is the anointed son of the living God. And then he makes it clear that Jesus is a soul bearer of God's new revelation right here, right now. Law points to Jesus, prophets points to Jesus. Jesus is it. The sum of God's new revelation only Jesus remains. Only Jesus remains. The secret is officially 100% in the book of Mark out. Jesus is the living, glorious king of the universe, of which I hope you're all saying in your hearts, amen. Amen.
What a picture that the sovereign God of the universe gives us, showing us he's not, we're not just to behold his glory, but he also demands our full attention. And he expects our listening ear. These few verses show us when I truly see Jesus for who he is, it's not just a matter of worship and awe and beholding him. It's a matter of now affirming his deity, admitting his authority, and acknowledging his supremacy. Clearly from this text, we see that Jesus truly is the Son of God. For those of you who deny who Jesus is, he's just a great moral teacher, he's a good guy that did some good things. This passage like clears it up for you as if the teachings didn't already, as if the miracles didn't already. This one puts an end to an exclamation mark on the fact that Jesus is in fact deity. Fully man, yet fully God at the same time. Pastor of Scripture reiterate this throughout the whole New Testament. John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is God. Brothers and sisters, you can put your doubts aside. You can put your, your inklings to deny Jesus aside. And instead, you can bow before him and make him your Lord today. God, I acknowledge that you are the son of the living God. You came to forgive me of my sin, the gospel. You came to give me new life. There's only one way to God. That's through Jesus Christ. Today, I want the new life of Jesus. I want you to be not just the Lord, but my Lord. For some of us, we need to just quit being dod- playing for the Dodgers and trying to escape the reality that Jesus is the son of God. For others of us, we, we can put it to rest. We, we don't have to doubt it any longer. We have all these doubts, and I know I believe, but I doubt. You can stop doubting today. Jesus made it clear. Jesus made it absolutely clear. If you already believe, and you're already on that page, and just let this reaffirm that all that you know is true, and you can walk, walk out of here with confidence, knowing that Jesus is the Son of God. Here's, we don't just affirm his deity. We also admit his authority. Look what God says, listen to him. Listen to him. We don't just worship him. We don't just give him a holy high five with our hands in the air and worship. We just acknowledge that he's real. We have to admit his authority. Jesus the rabbi is a good teacher. Jesus the resurrected savior in all of his glory. Oh my goodness, this is a picture of what Jesus is going to look like after his resurrection. It's a picture of what Jesus is going to look like when he comes back in the clouds one day. We we have to admit his authority. We've already seen in Mark how Jesus has authority over the natural realm and the the physical realm and the the elements and and human body and the emotional realm and the spiritual realm, casting out demons and and healing people of all kinds of ailments and diseases and, and issues. He has all authority. Matthew 28 reminds us of this. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me by God. Philippians chapter two reminds us that he has all authority. One day every knee is gonna bow to his authority whether you want to or not. But the greatest blessing remains for those who bow now to Jesus' authority. How do I admit his authority? It's signing up, getting in line, choosing to follow Jesus and make him commander of your army, commander of your life. Choosing to believe that you have no Lord, you have no Savior. Only when Jesus is Lord of your life does he truly become your Savior. It's choosing today, I'm going to 
follow Jesus as Joshua did today. For, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. He's it. We're in for him. We're not here to tell God what to do. We're here to listen to what God wants us to do. We're in. And then we do this. We acknowledge his supremacy. We acknowledge his supremacy. Yes, he's a friend of sinners. Yes, he's our wonderful savior who laid his life down on the line for us, but he's also the God who reigns supreme over all. We ought to stop and acknowledge his superiority and supremacy over all things. No one in the presence of God stands up before him without becoming undone. Think of Moses at the burning bush. Kind of the same kind of picture here, a theophany. He got undone and God says, behold, where you're standing is holy ground. Think of Joshua and the commander of the Lord's army, another theophany of the, the Old Testament. Kind of the same kind of thing is happening there where, where he falls on his face and, he, and yet and he says, fear not. And, and yet think of John in Revelation when he's encountering the resurrected Jesus in his vision and he's on his face and that's where we ought to be, acknowledging the supremacy of God over all things. Jesus isn't just a good teacher. He just doesn't do some cool miracles. He is the savior of the world. The world is created by him and in him and through him, Colossians 1. He's a sustainer of all things, the judge of all sin, the grantor of all forgiveness and eternal life. And he sits today in absolute dominion and power on the throne next to God the Father. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning of the first, beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, even in our lives, preeminent, not just prominent, but preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Know this today. Jesus reigns supreme over all. Every spiritual force, every world power, every disease and war, he reigns supreme over life and death. And the only place for Jesus is to reign supreme on the throne of your life as well. So as you look around us, all that's going on in our lives, in the world, we have no reason to fear Jesus is over this. He's supreme. Whatever our future holds, we have no reason to be anxious. Jesus reigns supreme. And if we're in Jesus, he's covering us and we have him at our side every step of the way, watching over, protecting, guarding, being near us. Jesus reigns supreme. Now our job is to make him supreme in our lives by the strength and the grace and the power of God. Thirdly, quickly, this just, let me summarize this whole text with this. All this transfiguration reality, this is the truth. Jesus sets the stage in this text for his humiliation and his glorification. Jesus sets the stage in this text for his humiliation and his glorification. Let me read the next few verses for you. Look what it says in verse nine. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say the first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the son of man that he, would, he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come 
And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Isn't it interesting that Jesus always after these great big events, these great big realities of him showing the disciples something magnificent or doing a great miracle, he always goes and says, and keep this to yourself. Why would he say keep this to yourself to his disciples at this point? If I'm a disciple, man, the one thing I want to do is run and tell all the other disciples what happened. I want to tell the world that Jesus told us he was going to suffer and die. He called us to this path of suffering, but there's a greater thing going on here. Jesus is going to come, Jesus', Jesus resurrected state, his glorious state is also part of the equation. I want to do that. Disciples probably wanted to do that. Why did Jesus say keep it to himself? Probably because a part of it was he didn't want to cause confusion with the reality that, that people were looking for him to be the, the glorious savior and not looking for him to carry the, the cross and the path of, uh, the path of suffering. And so just wait, guys, it's coming, but don't confuse people. Don't, don't mess with people's minds. There's too much for them to re- realize right now. Just know this is true. So they start thinking to themselves, well, what's going on? Look, at they're asking questions, trying to make sense of it, just as we probably would. What, what just happened there? Was that for real? What does it mean? They're asking all these questions. They're asking about, but what's the rising of the dead mean? And, and is Jesus gonna, how is Jesus going to rise from the dead? And then they ask him this. And, and what are this, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Again, they're thinking, you know, end of, end of the, the day probably, or the, 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 the coming of the kingdom of God. And isn't Elijah supposed to come first? And so why is he, he was here now, he's gone. Does this mean that it's coming? And, and Jesus um, simply says this, he says to them, he's like, the scribes all said it. Why the scribes say Elijah must come first? Jesus says, actually, Elijah does come first to restore all things. The scribes, for once, weren't wrong in this. It says in Malachi chapter um, four, verses five and six, that Elijah is gonna return before the time of the Lord to restore things. Jesus reminded them that Elijah has come to restore, but he didn't restore the way that they thought he was going to restore. He restored by calling people to repentance and faith in God. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. He restored people to God through the message of repentance. And and 4, verses 4 and 6 all make this clear. In fact, this passage also points us to John the Baptist who came to actually fulfill Malachi's mission, or sorry, Elijah's mission that was prophesied in Malachi. John the Baptist came and he actually was the true forerunner of Jesus who did suffer and who did die for his faith, who did call people to again restore things to himself. He actually fulfilled Elijah's mission for him. So that is now complete. But the bigger thing that they're missing is it's not Elijah that's the bigger signal of the coming of the kingdom of God is this, that Christ should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Just like Elijah was, just like John the Baptist was, Jesus would be in a far greater way. As for the coming temple prophesied about in Malachi, Jesus is the glorified temple. Greater sign to be concerned with is the death of the Son of God. Elijah came, John came, showing the foreshadowing of Jesus. Now Jesus is here. He has come and he will ultimately fulfill the mission of God and truly restore all things and all people to God himself through his own name. And he will rule in glorious state 
in all perfection. The point of this text truly comes to this. Jesus' humiliation will ultimately lead to his glorification. Jesus is the king of glory. The king that we desire, the glory that we long for is found in Jesus Christ. In his presence, more than anything else, is the only thing that can bring us personal joy and satisfaction and eternal blessing and hope. Praise be to the name of Jesus Christ. Awesome text. Awesome realities. I pray that God has spoken to you through this that you've seen today. A glorious picture of Jesus. I pray that your hearts are bursting with worship right now. I pray that your souls are longing for one thing, more of Jesus. I pray that your lives now, today, this week, will be set on the course of one direction and one direction alone, Jesus Christ, that he would be truly, truly the king of your life. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this text. Oh God, how we have been longing for an encounter with Jesus. We just had it through the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for bringing us face to face with your son. Thank you, God, for showing us that Jesus is far greater than our little minds can comprehend. He's far superior than anything this world has to offer. He is the God of the universe. Father, I pray that this revelation of Jesus, encounter with Jesus that we've just had through your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would not just be a fleeting moment now in our living rooms, but instead, oh God, would Jesus be the driving force of our lives? And this week, would we be determined to behold the reality of our Jesus? Would we be determined to make him our king and to look forward to the blessed hope of his return where all of our, your promises are made complete and all of our joy and our assurance and peace is finally realized in your presence. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.